What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Lena Mohammed. It's Wednesday, March 24th. Today, what Biden wants on gun control and how museums are surviving the pandemic. What we heard from the president on Tuesday was basically the most detailed and forceful comments we've heard from him since he was sworn in on the issue of guns and gun control. He called for banning assault weapons and high-capacity ammunition magazines and expanding background checks during gun sales. The United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House passed bills that close loopholes in the background check system. This is not and should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives. And we have to act. We should also ban assault weapons in the process. The timing of the president's remarks is also very notable. Of course, this came less than 24 hours after this mass shooting at a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, and less than a week after another shooting rampage in Atlanta. My name is Sean Sullivan, and I cover the White House at The Washington Post. And was this something that had been part of Biden's platform like during the campaign? Like, did he say anything about it before? Well, he did make his pitch on guns and what reform should be made to gun laws a pretty prominent part of his campaign promise. They listed a series of steps that he planned to take as president and things that he would be spearheading. But during transition from campaigning to governing, we saw a few things happen. I mean, one, he didn't fulfill a campaign promise that he made when he was running for president. That was to send a bill to Congress on his first day in office, repealing liability protections for gun manufacturers, closing background check loopholes. We didn't see that. And it's notable that we didn't see that because we saw a whole range of other actions that Biden took right away when he was sworn in on a whole range of other issues, but he did not take any action on guns. And he has not, to this date, signed a single executive order on guns. Right, because, you know, right when he became president, he issued a lot of executive actions. Why wasn't this issue one of them? Do do we know? One explanation I heard from talking to an administration official was, look, the House uh, members of Congress had put forward legislation Already, So there was not a need to do that. But I think a lot of activists and advocates feel that, you know, there's also a a sort of symbolic 
value for a president putting forward a proposed bill or signing an executive order or taking some other concrete action beyond just the the substance of it. And it sends a, a signal to people that you're serious about doing something on that issue. To be honest, it feels like, you know, we've we've been here before. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. After the mass shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, then-President Obama also gave an emotional speech afterwards. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, Beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. And then again in 2019, there were two back-to-back mass shootings, and President Trump was considering background checks and red flag laws, but... How much can a president do about gun control is sort of like what I really want to know. Yeah, you're right, Lena. It does feel like we've been here before several times over the years when we've seen these horrific shootings happen. And in recent years, gun control advocates have not been successful in pushing for these new federal measures. I think what a lot of activists who want to see these laws tightened expect from the president is for the president to be visible, is for the president to talk about this, is for the president to try to pressure members of Congress in the House and in the Senate to get behind these measures and to sort of use the bully pulpit, the platform to raise awareness. In the end, it is up to Congress, if there's going to be legislation passed, whether they want to vote on things that will change these laws or not. But the president can play a big role in trying to convince these members to vote a certain way. But as you alluded to, President Obama tried that and and it didn't work. And the politics uh, of gun laws, gun restrictions are complicated. They're divisive. This is an incredibly polarizing issue. Republicans and Democrats have starkly different views on this. This is a cultural issue that for a long time has been very, very difficult to forge a consensus over. Mm. So what about executive actions? Like how much power is there in those when it comes to gun control? Like if the president were to sign an executive action, toughening the laws, like how realistic is that? Well, that's another avenue that the White House has been looking at is, okay, look, if if Congress doesn't act, if we're going to get Republican resistance on Capitol Hill that's going to block everything. What can we do using the power of executive fiat, using the legal maneuvers that we can have at our disposal right now? I mean, a couple of things worth mentioning are that, you know, executive actions are not the same as law. They, they, they don't last forever. A new president can come in and quickly overturn those actions. And indeed, we've seen President Biden do that, right, with a lot of what President Trump and the Trump administration spearheaded. So these aren't as strong, long-lasting, and and concrete as a law would be in that sense. But there are things that the White House can do. And in fact, some of the things they've been looking at are strengthening background checks and community anti-violence funding. There's also some discussions underway about regulating so-called ghost guns, These are devices that are made at home. They don't have serial numbers. You know, they're kind of difficult to track. So there are some measures that the White House has been exploring. 
and they might well sign some executive orders. They haven't done so yet, so it remains to be seen. But but these are things that are not going to be as sweeping as passing a huge bill uh, in the Senate and the House that could really, really overhaul these laws. Mm. So then let, let's talk about that. So there is legislation that already passed the House that would theoretically toughen background checks. But I imagine that it would not be taken up by our current 50-50 Senate. Yeah, that's right. And the Senate really is the big obstacle right now for President Biden, not just when it comes to guns, but when it comes to a range of issues, because the House is controlled by Democrats. And as you point out, they've they've already taken steps. Um, they've already you know passed some measures, but we're already seeing that it's going to be very, very difficult in the Senate to get this stuff done for a number of reasons. I mean, one, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who was in the middle of this during the Obama years, is sort of seen as a central figure in any sort of gun negotiations, has already said he opposes, you know, these two House bills. And so already you have a Democrat saying that, which, you know, effectively sort of ends your chances off the bat of even getting to 50 votes. And because of the Senate rules, it's it's not even 50 that you would need. You would need 60 votes uh, on legislation because of the filibuster. And so, you know, even if somehow you were able to persuade Joe Manchin to change his mind or you're able to come up with some sort of new legislation that, that he might be able to support, where do you find 10 Republicans to cross over and vote with you? And that's where it looks to be all but impossible for the Democrats who are trying to spearhead these new laws because... A lot of these Republican senators have staked out positions uh, on guns, and they've stated pretty clearly that they they don't favor these new efforts, that they believe that they won't be effective in stopping these shootings. What happens in this committee after every mass shooting is Democrats propose taking away guns from law-abiding citizens, because that's their political objective. But what they propose, not only does it not reduce crime, it makes it worse. The jurisdictions in this country with the strictest gun control have among the highest rates of crime and murder. When you disarm law-abiding citizens, you make them more likely to be victims. If you want to stop these murders, go after the murderers. With the filibuster in its current form still in place, the odds are very, very long, and some would say near impossible, if not impossible, because the Republican senators on the other side of the aisle from the Democrats, they hold very, very, very different views on guns. This is not it's a polarizing issue. It's a cultural issue to a lot of people. It's a regional issue. And so it's a very, very tall task. So in 2013, following the Sandy Hook shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, Democrat Joe Manchin and Republican Pat Toomey, they tried to pass a bill together. Can you tell me a little bit about that that bill? Like, what would that legislation do? And would that have better odds now? So they proposed a, a plan to expand background checks on gun sales, which is an idea that a lot of advocates of greater restrictions on gun laws have been promoting for a long time. Of course, that effort fell short, even though it had bipartisan support. And when you look at today's Senate, it looks different than it did back in the Obama years. And one of the starkest changes is that there are fewer potential Republican crossover votes for something like that. The Senate Republican Conference has in many ways become 
more conservative and you don't have the sort of moderate Republican senators that you had at the time. So in some ways, the Senate landscape now is more difficult than it was back then. And it was difficult back then, difficult enough that they were not able to achieve success with their proposal. And what about the NRA? Like, where does it stand in all of this? How powerful is it really nowadays? When you look at previous efforts to change the gun laws, one of the biggest impediments that people who favor changing the laws, tightening gun restrictions have faced is the NRA. The NRA has been an incredibly powerful opponent that these advocates of tightening gun laws have had to deal with. But things have changed over the years. And one of the biggest changes is that the NRA as an organization has had to deal with a lot of infighting. It's had to deal with allegations of self-dealing. So this raises a question of how powerful, how organized, and how you know strong would their resistance be if, if we started to see a new effort on Capitol Hill to pass new gun restrictions? Because the group dealing with all this internal strife is not in the same position as it was during the Obama years when we weren't seeing this stuff sort of spill into the public view. So that's that's another variable in this whole process that is definitely worth watching as we look ahead to what comes on the horizon. I'm also curious, what do we know about how Americans actually feel about gun control legislation? Well, I think there's two things that we've seen over the years that are important to keep in mind when you look at this issue. On a broad scale... There is polling to suggest that Americans, a majority of them, do favor things like expanding background checks on gun sales. And they point to this polling and say, look, this is a broadly popular thing. But the other thing that's happening is that people who oppose these new restrictions are very, very passionate about opposing those restrictions. And in many cases, they tend to be more passionate than the people who favor the new restrictions. And so this is the tension that we see every time there is an effort to pass these new gun restrictions. On one hand, you have a public that's sort of broadly favorable to these ideas. But on the other hand, you have people who are willing to protest, who are willing to speak up, who are willing to hold members accountable if they if they vote for this stuff. And you've been covering now President Biden since he was running his campaign. How prepared do you really think the Biden administration is for something like that to happen and fail again? And and what do you think they're they're going to be doing in response? Well, that's that's a big question to answer right now is exactly how much political capital, exactly how much of an effort we're going to see from President Biden, from this White House to try to get legislation passed on Capitol Hill or to sign these new executive orders. I mean, it's clear that the White House has come out and said, look, we support these efforts. But it is one thing to support an effort and to make a speech saying that you support an effort. But it's another thing to really sort of put some muscle behind getting something passed. And we know from watching this president, this White House, that when they want something passed, when something is an urgent priority, they're going to put all their energy into that. They are going to put all their energy into making sure that the votes are there. They're going to wage a public pressure campaign. And the reason why we know that is they just did that on this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. This was the top priority of this White House going in the day that he was sworn in 
Uh, and even before that, aides and officials were saying this is this is what they're focused on, the pandemic. And so now we will see when it comes to guns, how much effort they are willing to put in and what they think the odds of success are. And if they're going to walk down a road and the votes aren't going to be there, there's a political price to pay for that. I think the officials in the White House are, are going to have to look at the situation. And if they decide, look, the votes are just not going to be there, then they're going to have to decide what they're going to do next. Because going down a road and having a vote that fails or a bill that has to be pulled just doesn't look good for a president. And it just doesn't look good for a White House, particularly one that is new and that is within its first few months. Sean Sullivan covers the White House for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced the story. Deaccessioning is a routine practice for art museums. They go through their collections, which, you know, are constantly changing with gifts and additions, purchases, and they decide to sell in order to get rid of duplicates or to perhaps they got a new piece that's similar to an old piece, so they decide which one is better. And so then they sell that, and typically art museums use the proceeds from those sales to buy more art. The controversy for this year is, is how to use the proceeds. It's not the deaccessioning, the sale itself. It's the use of the proceeds from the sale that has gotten a lot of attention and, you know, stirred quite a controversy within the field. Peggy McClone covers museums for The Post. She spoke to editor Alexis Diao about a recent change in the rules around museums selling their art. So it's been a difficult year for museums. The pandemic, the financial fallout because of the pandemic has them really reeling. And the governing body, the Association of Art Museum Directors, decided last April to change a rule in order to help them through the financial crisis, through this double pandemic. So the rule they changed is basically they said that for the next two years from April 2020 to April 2022, museums would not be sanctioned if they used the proceeds from the sale of art for the direct care of art. So not just to buy new art, but to pay for the costs of tending the collection that they have. And just that rule has led to, you know, quite this sort of battle between art museum directors who are not surprisingly very passionate about this topic and are in two separate camps. So the one camp says the collection is sacrosanct. If you change this and don't sanction, it is a slippery slope. It is opening up Pandora's box. On the other side are museum directors that say, this is a trying time, this is temporary, and the non-sanctioning of this will just give us a little wiggle room, a little safety net to move some money around and let us come out of this crisis. Basically, let us come out of the crisis, let us still be open uh, once the pandemic subsides and the financial houses get back in order. Okay, so they're taking money from the sales and they're using it in a way that they would not normally prior to April 2020 to get through this like crazy financial hardship and time. Correct. The crisis erupted, you know, earlier this month when the Met, you know, and everybody's always got their eyes on the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. 
So the Met board earlier this month voted to create a policy that allowed them to use money in a different way. And that created a backlash. There was, you know, there was a a petition, an online petition that got 25,000 signatures in a matter of days. Well, I have to ask, you know, as someone who's not steeped in the museum world, like what's the big deal about using money from art sales to basically keep going, especially when, you know, everybody's struggling to just get through this? You know, that's an excellent question. And it comes down to sort of a philosophical beliefs about what art museums are and what their functions are, their missions are. And so on on the one hand, you have directors like Tom Campbell, who used to run the Met and is now in California, who say that the collection is everything. You can't be monetizing it. That that's the the catchphrase. If you if you sell work and use the money for other things, you're basically using your collection as an asset, mm. and that is just the third rail that, that that's just going to burn everything to the ground. On the other hand, you have Glenn Lowry who runs MoMA, so that's a huge another like Met lodestar. We at the AAMD need to have a much broader conversation around the role of deaccessioning in achieving the long-term programmatic goals of our institutions. And that camp says, you know, the world has changed and we need to look at programming and we need to look at meeting our community's needs. And maybe the collection isn't the be-all and end-all. The 21st century, from my perspective is a century in which we have to make good on the promise of those collections, which is all about program. doesn't mean we stop acquiring. I don't mean that for a moment, but that we have to shift the, the, the focus from what we have already acquired to how we're going to use that. And that in that context, we should ask ourselves what role can judicious, regulated, deaccessioning play in helping us to achieve that. And it's also interesting because I think you have like a generational shift. I've talked with a couple of former museum curators and directors over the last few weeks, and they really, really dislike this idea. One former director said, this idea that you're compartmentalizing direct care is ridiculous because everything a museum does is in the care of the collection. And so you might think that you're making these rules that say you can't sell a Monet to fix your roof, but that's what they say that this is. It is a big deal, and it does mark a new way of looking at what museums are and and what their core responsibilities are. In terms of what the museums are actually selling, I mean, are they selling more than what they normally would? I mean, are they looking at selling things that they would not normally sell? Like, are you know, is someone going to buy water lilies number 13 from, <laughs> do you know, and have it over their bathroom toilet. I, I'm just, I'm, I, it's, it's. Well, it's, it's hard to say so far. The Mets director, uh, Max Holine spoke about this and said that they are not doing any more deaccessioning, any more sales than they normally would. We have been deaccessioning like all other museums in the U.S. for 
a long time, very robust policies for that. And so it's not as if some kind of crazy things are happening. So the whole argument that some of the critics suddenly say, well, okay, uh, the Met abandons its mission. I mean, I, I don't see that at all. We'll know more in the spring, typically the auctions in the spring and fall give, give you a better sense because that, you know, museums will have to put what they're going to try to auction to the auction houses. And so we'll have a sense then. Tom Campbell, you know, the, the former Met director, one of his arguments is that you don't sell the stuff that's in the basement because the stuff that's not on the walls doesn't get good money. He worries that this was what will happen. So Peggy, is there a case in which a museum tried to deaccession some of its work and it backfired? In the fall, the Baltimore Museum of Art unveiled a very progressive program. It wanted to sell three pieces to create an endowment of $65 million that it would use for buying more art of uh, women and people of color and also giving pay raises to its lower level, mostly African-American staff. It didn't happen. It got a lot of community pressure and also pressure from the past presidents of the AAMD. But a lot of people said that there were, you know, problems with the plan and that it doesn't really reflect what's going on in the field. In in one sense, the Baltimore Museum's director, Christopher Bedford, made a point of saying they weren't in financial distress. So he flaunted that requirement. The second thing they did was they were proposing to deaccession three important pieces. One, uh, an enormous and very popular Andy Warhol, and then two paintings, one by an artist who's living, uh, Bryce Marden, and that's a no-no in the field. And then another by Clifford Still, um, a work that was given to them by the artist, and that was a rare thing. So those people who are for this change say, don't look at Baltimore because that's not really a fair uh, model. Have these museums signaled that once the pandemic subsides, that they would go back to the way it was before? That's exactly the issue. Members of the AAMD, that Association of Art Museum Directors, were meeting, and this is one of the central questions. On the one hand, people that we... um, that Sebastian Smee and I interviewed said, how can you put the genie back in the bottle? Once they've made this decision, there's no going back. And others say, no, that's absolutely not true. The AAMD is known as a conservative organization. Art museums typically move very slowly. There's no reason to think that uh, they won't rescind this change and things will go back to normal come April of 2022. And, and also remember, they, you know, the big caveat was you have to be in financial distress. They weren't giving this as a, just because you don't feel like fundraising or just because you haven't planned properly, you can do this. They, they were linking it directly to the pandemic's financial repercussions. Peggy McGlone covers museums for The Post. She spoke with Alexis Diao, who also produced the story. Sebastian Smee contributed reporting. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Rennie Svernovsky mixed today's show. We are still looking for stories about reunions after vaccination. 
Are you about to meet up with friends you haven't seen in over a year? Are you finally going back to your hairstylist? Is she going to see that you dyed your hair purple, then pink, then green, like I have? We'd love to hear from you. Send a voice memo or an email to postreports at washpost.com, telling us about your upcoming reunion. Or better yet, record it. You can use the voice memo app or take a video on your phone and email that to us too. I'm Lina Muhammad. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.